Reading of God's Word. We'll turn to John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9, we'll read together verses 1 through 12, where there is a man who is blind since birth, healed by our Lord Jesus. Beginning at verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground. And made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had that which had seen that which, excuse me, had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, how are your eyes open? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So let us pray again. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the wonderful things in your law, in your word. We pray that Jesus would shine forth brightly in our hearts. Help us to follow him, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. There's no denying that suffering is part of life in this world. And that part of that suffering involves human sickness And for some, physical abnormalities. And so while we often learn at a young age to expect suffering, to expect sickness, to expect these things, uh, we may sometimes wonder, why do these things exist? In the form of a question, it would go, well, how are we to account for such suffering? Well, through the ages, men have tried to give an answer for sufferings in this life, for pain, for disease, for sickness. Uh, One might think of karma, that teaching of Buddhism involving reincarnation, where the soul, it is believed, uh, goes, it migrates through time from one body to the next. And, And if a person is suffering in this life, it is because that person... Uh, lived a life of evil in the previous life. And so that person is paying for those sins in the present life. And that will continue. That will be an endless cycle until that person rids him or herself of evil and reaches a state of liberation called nirvana. Well, the Word of God does not teach reincarnation. But it does address the origin of sickness The origin of physical affliction. Indeed, all suffering. 
And so this morning, as we look at what our Savior does for this man here, I want us to consider that, to think about sickness and suffering. I want us to see the Lord's perspective in all of this, in human suffering, especially as it's seen here from John chapter 9. So you'll remember Jesus has been at the temple. He's been teaching at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Last time we were in John at the end of chapter 8, Jesus walked away, kind of disappeared and walked through the angry crowd there, the Pharisees. And so as he's leaving the temple, I guess, as we read from chapter 9, verse 1, he sees this man who was blind from birth. His disciples see this man, and the disciples have the question, well, who sinned? What is it? Was it his parents, or was it him? So that, with the result that he was blind even from his birth. So Jesus gives a few words there in verses 3 and 4. And then he spits on the ground. He takes that spittle. He rubs it on the eyes of this man. And he anoints his eyes. He tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does so. He comes back healed. Perfect vision. And then there are those who question him. And uh, they wonder if this is indeed the same man. Others ask him who, who did this. And he gives the testimony. He confirms that it was Jesus who healed him. And so then, as we consider what goes on here, I want us first of all to see one thing. And that is, as humans, we we possess the capacity to err when it comes to sickness and suffering. As humans, we're limited with our knowledge. As humans, we are fallen in our understanding, in addition to being limited in that understanding. And so when it comes to human sickness, to suffering in general, we try to give an account for it, whether it's ourselves or someone else. We we are prone to err in our judgment, to give an answer for it, ultimately. And this is not removed from what happened to the disciples. They committed the error, as we see there in verses 2 and 3. They committed the logical fallacy of the false alternative where it's either or, it's either A or it's B. Not thinking or considering that could be B or rather C or D or third or fourth or fifth option. So in verse 2, they asked Jesus, who is their teacher, the rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. In their day... There were teachings circulating as taught by the other rabbis in the land of Israel and Palestine. One rabbi said this, quote, evil influences bore sway over a man from his formation as an embryo. In other words, they taught that embryos could sin in the womb. Another rabbi said, quote, there is no death without sin. There is no suffering without iniquity. And so in other words, all suffering in this life is due to sin or iniquity. And so based on that, they would understand that someone sinned, either this man or his parents, to cause this blindness. And so this blindness was a curse from God. That's the way they reasoned. But we have to be careful, don't we? 
whether it's ourselves and our own sickness or that of others. I mean, one reason the book of Job was given to us was to show us this exact thing that we can err and sometimes do when it comes to reasoning this way. You know, there's Job. And at the very beginning, he loses his family, all of his sons and daughters, the house where they were uh, fellowshipping. It falls upon them and kills them all. Job loses all of his live livestock, all of his possessions. He loses everything except for his, his wife. And if that's not enough, he comes down with these terrible boils, the sickness, his health fails. But we're told, aren't we? We're told how his friends treated him. They came and they sat with him. And then there's Eliphaz in Job chapter 4 and verse 7. And Eliphaz says to his friend Job, uh, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or were there the upright, or were the upright ever cut off? The implication is okay, Job, you're suffering, you're in sickness. Um, you need to fess up, you just need to confess it. What is it that you have done to deserve this, all of this suffering? Now, we have the luxury of having the whole picture. We have Job chapter 1, where Satan approaches God. He challenges God. God allows Satan to attack Job with these things. And in Job chapter 1, the Lord himself says about Job, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Doesn't mean Job is sinless, all of sin. It means that he was one of God's people, that he sought to live in the way that God required of him. He feared God. He shunned evil. It was not because of his sin that Job was suffering. Do we commit this today? This fallacy? A logical leap? An assumption? Maybe because we're we're suffering. We think we've sinned or we have suspicious eyes upon others because they are suffering with sickness or abnormalities. I remember when I was in seminary, Rachel and I were expecting a child and she was at the beginning of her third trimester and had a miscarriage. And you can imagine the thoughts that go through a parent's mind. Thankfully, we had a good pastor who gave us good counsel about that. What about you? Do you have sickness, suffering, ailments, and wonder? Has, has God inflicted this upon me for something that I have done? You know, there are children born to parents who have defects and so forth. And you might wonder, have I done something as a parent to cause this to my child? Well, before we continue... Of course, our Lord addresses this here, but before we continue, I think it's appropriate to talk a little bit about what the Word of God teaches concerning the relationship of sickness, bad health, abnormalities, suffering in general, and sin. So let's talk about that now. The Bible does give an account for sickness, for suffering in general. You see, all disease, all sickness, all suffering, all, as we say, the miseries of this life are a result of mankind's fall into sin. 
That's part of the Christian worldview. We acknowledge, we believe that uh, we are sinful, that there is that thing called original sin. Adam's sin, uh, he and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And as a result, all of mankind were plunged into an estate of sin and misery. So Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God put Adam and Eve in the, the garden. He said to the man there, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Of course they did. In Genesis 3, they died spiritually and they began to die physically. And part of physical death is sickness, and suffering, and pain. Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul is expounding upon this, explaining how sin came into God's good creation. And he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. See, death came into the world through one man's sin, Adam's sin, and death spread to all men because all sin, they all sinned in Adam being connected to Adam as their federal head. What Adam did, we did because he represented us. And so that is ultimately the cause of all suffering in this life, the fall, original sin. But we, we need to understand as well that there are times where God does bring affliction upon men as a direct result of one's personal and actual sins. The Bible teaches this clearly. Um, it could be because of a parent. The sins of a parent could have an effect upon their children. In Exodus 20, in the second commandment, verses 4 and 5, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. The same principle is repeated in Exodus 34, 7. Now just note here that these are temporal judgments in this life. God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation. Now, if you've read your Bible and you know of Ezekiel 18, you'll know what it says there. And you're asking the question. Because in Ezekiel 18 and verse 17, it says that the son shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Then how do we reconcile that? How do we understand what God says? Well, in Ezekiel 18, it also confirms what God has said in Exodus 20, also in Exodus 34. But there is a key to what is said here. I'm speaking of the rebellious men. It says in Ezekiel 18 and verse 4, the soul who sins shall die. So God holds us personally responsible for our own sins. The soul that sins shall die. But later it says in verse 10, if that person who um, sins against God and is in rebellion, 
If he begets a son who is a robber or a shedder of blood and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, and he gives all these categories of sins, if he has exacted usury, takes increase, um, shall he then live? Verse 13, he shall not live. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. But the key is in verse 14 of Ezekiel. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, go down to verse 17, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. So there is hope for our children. There is hope for the children of a cursed regeneration. And that hope is repentance and faith in God. That they turn from their sins. They call upon the Lord. The Lord Jesus. And so even today we have hope for our nation. A generation. Perhaps several generations who have turned their backs on God. It may take a few generations to turn things around. But if men will turn to the Lord, he will hear their cry from heaven and heal their land. Now, there are times at which as well that God does send affliction because of personal sin. Again, I've already alluded to this, maybe inferred at societies in general. I mean, we could look at Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. They were a people of grotesque sins and, and God destroyed those people. But even within God's own covenant people, the church, he sometimes sends sickness their way. Maybe you remember in the Old Testament, there was a king in Israel. His name was Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles 26, 16, um, after he did something forbidden by the king, he, he went into the temple and he offered sacrifices. He did the work of the priest. God forbade that. He said, no, you aren't to do that. Well, King Uzziah did it. And so God struck him with leprosy. In 2 Chronicles 26, we are told that's why he received that disease from God. And in 1 Corinthians 11, in the New Testament, there's the Christian church at Corinth. And, and they were not, many of them were not partaking of the Lord's Supper communion in a worthy manner. They weren't discerning the Lord's body. And they were taking it flippantly. Some of them were getting drunk from the wine at the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, because of this, some of you are weak. Some of you are sick. Some of you are asleep. Some actually died. Now, why would God do that? Well, the wages of sin is what? Death. And so one question we should ask is, why does anyone live? Why does anyone have five years, 10 years, 50, 80 years on this earth if the wages of sin is death? God is slow to wrath and anger. But for his people, for the Christian, for you and me, beloved, Hebrews 12 tells us why we sometimes might get sickness. Hebrews 12 and verse 5 says, You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God chastens 
his sons and daughters. He disciplines us. Why? Because he loves us. So he quotes the Proverbs there, showing that. And so if we fall ill, it's not inappropriate to step back and say, Lord, are you teaching me something here concerning my own sin? He's always teaching us. But as we fall ill, we need to perhaps, or we should, it's not inappropriate to ask the question, have I done something to bring this upon me? After all, in Psalm 38, in verse 2, David's confessing his own sin to God. And in Psalm 38, in verse 2, it says, For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. David, in his confession, acknowledges that God has sent his arrows They have pierced his innermost being. His bones are sick. His health is not sound. Why? He says, because of my own sin. Could be alcohol. Could be a terrible lifestyle. Could be rebellion. Could be unfaithfulness in general. Failure to repent. So James 5 tells the church, are any of you sick? Call for the elders. Let them come. Let them anoint you. Let them pray for you. And it says the prayer of faith will restore one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And so it's teaching there could be, it's not always the case, there could be a connection between one's sin and sickness. And also I think the implication there in James is really and truly only the person who is sick can really know. Right? And maybe sometimes we don't know. So we pray, Lord, search me and know me, try me, see if there be any way in me, lead me, see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me into the way everlasting. This man, back in John chapter 9, he was born blind. He was blind from infancy, from his birth. He had congenital blindness. And so what would our Lord's answer be here to the disciples, to what we've been looking at this morning? Well, Jesus most definitely teaches that not all sickness, not all physical ailments and abnormalities are the direct result of one's personal sin. Look at verse 3. So Jesus answers the disciples. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. You see, he's not saying that they were sinless. We've already talked about that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have been affected by Adam's original sin. And He's not saying they're sinless, this man nor his parents. But what? Well, he says, but that the works of God should be revealed in or through him. I want you to chew on that. This man was blind from birth. He's now a man for a long time. Why? For the glory of God through Jesus Christ. That's why he was ill. For this moment, For this particular occasion that God may glorify himself 
through Jesus Christ because Christ is going to bring healing to him. He's going to give sight to the blind. And therefore receive glory. Jesus will be confirmed as the Messiah through the healing of this man by giving him sight. Jesus will be manifested. Jesus will be put on display before the world. What about our suffering? What about your sickness? Your pain, your ailments? Will they too come your way for the glory of God? You say, but I haven't been healed. Maybe you won't be healed in this life. But you will at the resurrection, right? You'll receive a glorified body at the resurrection. If a person is blind in this life, if surgeries and glasses and all of that don't help, if he or she is a Christian, they will have a resurrected body with perfect vision at the end of time. And we also have the promises of God in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to them who are the called, who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And Paul teaches there that purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to make us more like Jesus himself. That's a promise. That's a fact for you. And so in other words, if you do have ailments, you can give glory to God, knowing that this outer man perishes day by day by day. But our inward man is being renewed by God every day to be more like Jesus. And so when we suffer, do we suffer well to the glory of God? In verse four, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, the night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says, I must work the works. Um, Some translations say we must work the works. What does Jesus mean here? Um, He's talking about the works of the kingdom. His preaching of the gospel, getting the gospel out, calling people to himself. And also his miracles, confirming that he is the Messiah. Doing the work of the kingdom, preaching about the kingdom of God. And so there is this sense of urgency here because he says, I must do this while, verse 4 says, it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. While he is here, during his earthly ministry, his time on earth is limited. He has a calling. The Father has given him the work to do which he must perform. And while he is here, he says, I am the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The world. You see, the the disciples, they were more concerned about this theological dilemma and puzzle. What has this man done? What did he do? Why did he get this way? And Jesus' concern was not necessarily that so much. It was, what can I do for him? How can I help him? So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. This goes back to chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, his works, his words serve as the light of the world in the darkness, in the dark world. He is the light who has come into the world. And there's a contrast, if you haven't noticed this, between chapter 8, what we've been seeing with the Pharisees. They are in darkness, even though they have visible sight physically. Um, They are in the dark. Jesus is the light who is shining the light amongst and in and through the darkness to shine his truth forward. 
And here's this man. He's calling this man out of the darkness. And this man who was blind will have sight. He will call upon Jesus, confess Jesus. We need to understand and see that contrast here. So in verses 6 and 7, Jesus heals the man. Oddly, he spits on the ground and takes the mud and anoints the man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does and he's healed. Why does Jesus do this? There are many offerings. I don't know. I like to think because he's using the dirt, the dust of the ground. And this perhaps goes back to creation, the first creation. Man is made from the dust of the ground. And he's pointing us forward to the new creation, the resurrection. You know, the miracles point us forward to that. They confirm who Jesus is, but they also point us to the resurrection, the glorious bodily resurrection of his people. Jesus can heal using means or he can just speak the healing into existence like he and the Father and the Spirit did with the first creation. So he tells this man to wash in the pool of Siloam. Verse 11, John notes um, that this word Siloam means sent actually in verse 7 there. And this pool was something set up by Hezekiah in his day. They had this um, body of water, this trench, um, which collected water from the hill. It came down and uh, went under the temple and into the city. They did this in case they would be surrounded. They would have a source of water. But this, this water, which would flow from under the temple down the hill on which the temple sat was symbolic of spiritual water, living water, the water that cleanses and gives life as Isaiah 8 and Ezekiel 47 notes. You know, the spiritual blessings and cleansing that comes from God. And so here, Jesus sends this man to do this because he wants him, uh, he's testing him to see if he'll obey. It's an act of obedience but also he's going to the pool that is sent. And so he has to go to that which is sent. He's teaching this man again and again and us that if we want to be spiritually cleansed, if we want to be spiritually healed, we have to go to the true Siloam, Jesus who is sent by the Father. That it's only through him that we receive such. So the man comes back and at the end of verse 7, he came back seeing There are those who ask, is this not he who sat and was begged? Verse eight, some says, some said, this is he. Others said he is like him. They couldn't believe it or they just flat out denied it. So he said, I am he. He confirmed that he is the one and he confirms who it is that healed him. It is Jesus who had done this healing for him. So as we consider these things this morning, as we see these things this morning, we make three points of application. As we look at this passage, do we not have a word of caution about our own sufferings and especially the sufferings of others? Physical ailments, abnormalities, and suffering in general. We need to be careful not to jump to the conclusion 
that we have done something to cause it, especially with others, to look upon others who are down, to look upon others who have ailments, not to assume the worst. And even if it is the case, not to kick them while they're down, but to ask the question, what can we do to help? There have been people ill in our congregation recently. There's been so many prayers, so many meals brought to these people. That's the way it should be. Not to assume the worst and think, well, let's pull an Eliphaz here. What'd you do? But it could be that the Lord is using that sickness in that person's life in that way or another way, just to trust the Lord. And when you are sick and when you, when you are afflicted, you can suffer well as a Christian. You can trust the promises of God. That God is using this for His glory, yes. That He's using this for your good to make you more like Jesus in life, in word and deed and so forth. To mold you unto His image. To trust in the living God. And as we see this here, let us not overlook and let us see with the eyes of faith, Jesus, the great physician, the one who brings sight to the blind, the one who cures the incurable, who brings spiritual eyesight, who brings spiritual cleansing, that he by this miracle is confirmed as the Messiah of God for Isaiah 29, 18 says in the days of the Messiah, he will arrive. And the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. There are blind people all around us. And they need to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like we have seen the light ourselves. And so then that leads us to the third and last point of application. While it is the day... Let us be about the work of God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so who on earth will carry forth the torch? Who on earth will carry forth his light, the light of the gospel? Well, he tells us. Matthew 5, right? He says in the original, you and you alone are the light of the world. The church is the light of Christ. We hold the banner. We hold the light pointing men to the one who brings spiritual sight, cleansing, and forgiveness of sins. And so let us spend our lives serving the Lord Jesus while it is day. For the night, we are told here, is at hand. Are you serving Christ? Are you making it your light? Or your life's purpose to serve Him in every area of your life. Not just on Sundays or during times where we come together. But at the workplace, in your family, when you go through the drive through Wherever it is that the Lord calls you. As I thought about that principle there. Where Jesus says, the night is coming. He's about the day. There's an urgency here. I thought, thought about Polycarp. It's not a type of fish. It's not many fish. 
This was a man's name. He was a disciple of John who wrote this gospel. He lived just at the end of the days of the apostles. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And uh, Polycarp served Christ well uh, many days. And because he served Christ, he was called upon to uh, renounce his faith in Christ. He was called upon to worship Caesar, to call Caesar Lord. All you have to do is renounce your faith. We won't kill you. All you have to do is say, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. And all you have to do is just burn a few incense. Just worship him a little. And so there he stood. And what did he say? Polycarp said, 86 years I have served Christ. And he never did me wrong. How can I blaspheme my Eighty-six years he served Christ. And so may we be able with Polycarp to say as long as we could, as long as we had the opportunity on earth, we served Christ for as long and as while it is day. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for these words we pray. We pray that you would give the blind sight. We pray that you would help us to high hold the to hold high the, the light of Christ and his gospel. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to work in your name for Jesus tells us we are working together. We're working with you and we work and we're working with one another by the power of your spirit. And so help us, we pray, to give glory and honor unto you. In the name of Christ, amen.